Welcome to the Chinese Canadian Museums podcast, The School Room. I'm your host, Melissa Lee, CEO of the museum. Thank you for joining us. Today we have a special episode for Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day in Canada is November 11th. It's a public holiday that commemorates the end of the First World War honoring the sacrifices veterans have made for this country. On this episode, we are highlighting the contributions of Chinese-Canadian war veterans. Joining us today, we have special guest Rick Wong, whose father, Hank, was a veteran who served in World War II. His father has a Chinese immigration certificate featured in the Paper Trail exhibition, as well as his mother, who is Chinese-Australian. Welcome to our podcast, Rick. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are actually visiting us from Toronto, is that correct? Correct. Yes. Glad you could join us here in person in the Wingsang building, the oldest building in Vancouver, Chinatown, and the home of our first Chinese Canadian Museum in Canada. So maybe we can just start with you telling us a little bit about your dad. Sure. Uh, My dad was born in London, Ontario in November 1919. His mother died shortly after he was born. His father was a guy called Tom Wong, and he had a brother called Lem Wong. Lem Wong came over turn of the century. I think it was uh, 1897. Tom came over in 1905. Lem had gone back to bring over his brother and his wife, and he had established himself a little bit in Canada. So then my dad was the youngest had three older sisters and shortly after he died i believe it was in one of the falling waves of the flu epidemic you know how with covid we've had different waves of things like that so his mother died of the flu shortly after he was born so my dad had a difficult upbringing because his mother had passed his dad was working in the restaurant and his brother also had a restaurant so he spent a lot of time with his brother's family and as well as in a protestant orphanage so my dad, he was an interesting guy as a kid. He once told me, he said, uh, don't get in trouble because when the cops come pick people up, they always can point out the Chinese guy. And I'm going, you know this from experience. <laughs> and uh, of course, my dad, he told me he had a gang. They used to sell newspapers on the street and they'd have to fight other guys for their area. They used to run up and down all the fire escapes on all the buildings across the roofs. He told me he learned how to drive from a taxi driver that they had paid off. There was a fruit vendor called the Aces Fruit Company next door. He used to hotwire one of the trucks to practice driving. Yeah, he had a lot of, a lot of stories growing up. But Lem Wong's restaurant was a fairly famous restaurant in London. During the 20s, they had big bands there and dancing. They would do a Christmas dinner, giving out full turkey dinners to homeless people. It was quite a place. I still have some of the silverware. I have some of the menus from the restaurant. You know, you get full steak dinner for 60 cents and stuff like that, because those are the prices. On the back of the menus, one of the cooks has written translations into Chinese of, you know, uh, French peas and things like that. So yeah, it was pretty interesting. So it was Western? Yeah, it was a Western restaurant. It was uh, called Wong's, Wong's Cafe. I'm told that a lot of the restaurants in those days would use cafe rather than restaurant or something longer because it was less expensive to get the neon made because there's less letters, right? That's yeah, smart. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting fact why they're all called cafes, right? It's like the least expensive way to put it up on a sign. Lem Wong, he actually was a bit more of a Confucian scholar type guy. He sent his kids for a lot of education. My aunt Greta, she was 
think it's the first Chinese Canadian lawyer. My Aunt Mary was a gynecologist. She was one of the first Chinese Canadian female doctors. Uncle Norman was an engineer. Bill Wong was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. So a lot of his kids actually did really well academically. My dad's side, though, because he was orphaned, didn't go as far. He became a laboratory technician later on in life. But yeah, that's kind of the background uh, story on that. He tells me that when war was declared, he signed up. He was a sea cadet, and he was a top sea cadet. But at that time, if you weren't white, you weren't allowed in the British Navy. That had a exclusion policy. You had to be white to be in the British Navy. So he went downstairs. They went to Chatham, and he joined the Canadian Army. And in Chatham, they let him in the Army. Apparently, at the time, he was slightly underage and underweight. He told me he ate six bunches of bananas before he went for the weigh-in <laughs> and drank a lot of water. But he was really skinny when he was younger. My mom used to joke that when he would be walking in shorts, the shorts wouldn't move, but the leg, you could see the legs move. <laughs> so he was skinny. He was a runner. But anyway, he was in the Canadian Army, became a sergeant and a weapons trainer, demolition expert. And their group was doing homeland defense. They actually spent time in Prince George. They spent time in the West Coast. They went up to Alaska at one point. All, they were all worried about Japanese invasion. So they were kind of home force. He also spent time in Halifax. At that time, Halifax was getting regular visits from German U-boats and stuff like that. So they were worried about them dropping off spies and things. So he did a lot of work across Canada, really got to know the country. He became like Mr. Canada. Later on in life, he took me on trips all across the Canada. He knew kind of all these places. But while he was doing that, one of his sisters in Ontario he had three kids and her husband, Tom Gipp, he was a local member of the Lions Club and like kind of a, a big community citizen. He went in to get his tonsils removed and during anesthetic, he wasn't properly monitored. He swallowed his tongue, he asphyxiated and he died. So my dad got compassionate leave and went back to Palmerston to help out raise the kids. But my cousin Irene told me that he, you know, my dad had just come back from all this training and stuff. So he would have the kids uh, before bed do an obstacle course through the house. They had to crawl under the table. They had to climb up on the bunk beds and he'd smack them on their bums as they're going by and, you know, <laughs> things like this. He was a uh, pretty entertaining That sounds fun. Was born 1919. World War I ends in 1918. He's born the year after. So he never experienced the first World War. What made him want to enlist for World War II? When I've heard him answer that question, he says, Nope, just something you got to do. So, you know, the subtext about Chinese serving and when I'd ask him about racism in London and things like that, for example, he'd say, Nope, ne never bothered us, never bothered me. And I think it's quite common with people that experience racism to kind of deny. I mean, I said, you were a Sikh then and you weren't allowed to join the Navy. And all of his compatriots all did, like all of his buddies and stuff all ended up there. And he goes, well, that's just the way it was, you know, and that was kind of in those days, I think how you deal with racism. They told me stories about that Lem Wong's restaurant actually had a long staircase <laughs> and they put the cash at the top of the stair and it had cases where people wouldn't pay. That was quite common in Chinese restaurants where guys would come in and then they'd complain about the food for some reason and then not want to pay. And, and some of them got thrown down the stairs. <laughs> so it's kind of the advantage, right? That's of, uh, one way to deal with 
uh, yeah. <laughs> errant customer. Yeah. <laughs> so the British were doing well in Europe at that time, and they had operatives throughout occupied Europe. And they wanted to try to put people behind the lines in Asia, but all their operatives in Europe were all Caucasian, you know, white guys. They couldn't drop them in. They would spot it right away. So the British Secret Service was trying to figure out where can we get colonials that could blend in. And so they looked for the Canadian Army. And they're like, how come there's not more in the Canadian Army? Well, they're not allowed in the Canadian Army and in the service. Uh, it's very hard. They're very rare, very rare for, to find any. So one of their operatives, my dad told me that he was at the restaurant and there was this little, little guy who sat at one of the back booths watching him while he was working at the restaurant. And then at the end of the service, he said, can you close the door? I want to chat with you. And he talked with him and said, we're recruiting for an operation. Would you be willing to come back? Would you be willing to train for that? And he said, okay. And they sent him off to Vancouver. He said, it's one of the big hotels. He went in there and there was all these guys with red caps and all these brass and all this sort of stuff. And he came in to be interviewed. And one guy was looking out the window and turned around and said, you don't have a Chinese accent. <laughs> and my dad said, no, I'm born here. But then they looked at his records, demolition experts, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So he was accepted into that group. I have to say it sounds very James Bond. Yeah, it's very James Bond. And my dad underplays it all the time. When I grew up, there was a box, a steel box down in the basement, and it was full of detonators. <laughs> when they came back, they brought back all kinds of stuff. And when I got older, my mom said, you better get rid of those detonators. So, <laughs> so when it came time to get rid of the detonators, I took them down to the police station, and he stuck them on the desk. And I'm thinking, you did that nowadays. You walk in with a box of explosives into a police station and leave them on the desk. <laughs> but in those days, my dad was saying, gee, I wonder what they thought when they opened up the box. <laughs> it's a whole other reaction nowadays. Yeah, well, when he was coming out to the museum, he still had training hand grenades and commando knife and all that sort of stuff. I'm saying, don't take that in your carry-on, okay? <laughs> it's a different time. It's a different time. So there was something special about Force 136 in that way, that it was specifically recruiting Chinese Canadians or Asian Canadians. Did your father always talk about Force 136 as something particularly unique or special? Well, so his original group in the photos is 13. He thinks one of them was actually a spy. <laughs> but that group did their training in Penticton in the Okanagan. There's lots of stories about Chicken Island and stuff like that. but. They had an inspection by a guy, I think it was Colonel Peaks. He told me that they'd set up for this inspection to show what they could do. And as he arrived by boat, they had explosions going off on the hills all around them. I think this is supposed to be secret training. Anyway, apparently they set fire to the place. But after they showed uh, water landing, they showed demolition, they showed all these, they blew up a lot of stuff. I think they like blowing stuff up. He said, how come there are not more Chinese in the Canadian army? And they said, well, for most places like BC, they're, they're not allowed. Doug Jung was part of that group. And he went back to get the legislation changed to allow Chinese to come in. And that was the start of Force 136. Your father went uh, back to that get group. the legislation? No, 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 oh. that the general went back and said, look, like there's all these Chinese Canadians. I just came from a demo. They're really good. <laughs> How come they're not serving, right? We need people. And especially if they're going to be fighting the Japanese in Asia, having more operatives that are bilingual or can understand local culture and things like that would be kind of an asset. I mean, the British did really badly against the Japanese at the start of the war. They were overrun, like, immediately.
Can you tell us a little bit about how your dad met your mom? My mom had a story that at that time food was rationed in Australia and somehow she knew some farmers and she got some whipped cream. And so at St. Kilda's, she was whipping cream on the beach and attracted the attention of my dad. <laughs> so, so for those that don't know, where is St. Kilda's? St. Kilda's in Melbourne. Melbourne. So they went over to Australia and then they were waiting to be dropped in on a mission into occupied China. What I've heard more recently was that the projected mission was to liberate the British prisoners in Hong Kong. And so that's what they're preparing for. They had studied parachuting and all that, but their plan was to drop them in by submarine. So while they were in Australia, they were billeted with Chinese families and had some kind of social relations with the Chinese community in Australia. And so I said that they didn't get to penetrate enemy lines. They just got to crash a lot of parties. <laughs> so. so that's really interesting. This specific force, Force 136, were sent on this mission potentially to rescue British soldiers in Hong Kong. And in the interim, while they're waiting in Australia, they're set up with Australian Chinese families. Yes. They got the support. He has photos in his photo book and I'm saying, weren't you on a secret mission? Like, where are you getting your photos developed at the drugstore? <laughs> and they never told me where they got them developed. The fortunate thing is we have some kind of photo record on it. He didn't tell me where they got developed. But I know he actually, he actually did chemistry. He had a story that when he was stationed somewhere in BC, he bought a bearskin off of a First Nations guy. And my dad had studied chemistry in high school. And so he got the chemicals together. He bought this raw bearskin. He was going to tan it. And he got this basin and full of full chemicals and tried to tan this thing, but he did it incorrectly. And the next day when he pulled the thing out, all the hair fell off and it was, <laughs> it was really disgusting. So your parents met in Melbourne during this interim period where your dad's waiting to go on his secret mission. They fell in love and got married and your mom moved to Canada with him. Yeah. So my mom's family in Australia was actually fairly wealthy. Her grandfather, had actually started setting up businesses in Australia during the gold rush period. He was a merchant. I don't know very much about him, but I saw a photograph from his 80th birthday party in Hong Kong, and it was astounding. There's got to be over a thousand people in the banquet. He's got photographs of him sitting on a staircase with his entourage of like a hundred guys behind him. There's pictures of the family big lines, generations, people and stuff. He was super wealthy. So my mom came from this fabulously wealthy Australian family. She was in the offshoot in Bendigo, which is a gold mining town. They were fairly wealthy in Bendigo. So the Golden Dragon Museum, that area around Bridge Street, they owned a lot of that. But at the time when the Japanese were invading, they apparently gave a lot of it back to the city. I think that they thought at the time that Australia was about to be overrun. But if you've seen documentaries on that, they were really worried that the Japanese were there. And after the they were snubbed from the First World War, the Japanese were actually really aiming to take over Australia. Really? I didn't know this. But so anyway, your mother is here from this wealthy family in Melbourne and your father, Canadian soldier, comes in and sweeps her off her feet. Yeah, my mother was actually bequeathed to be married to a wealthy merchant family, but I think it was like one of those arranged marriages. So she meets this dashing Canadian guy and they're dating. And then on August 6th, they bomb uh, Hiroshima. August 9th, they bomb Nagasaki. 
And my dad said, look, the war's over. I'm going to be going back. Do you want to get married or not? And they got married on September 4th. Let's hope that wasn't the actual proposal word <laughs> years to, to sweep her off her feet. So I think being in a Chinese family can have a lot of pressures. And so my mom saw this guy and just thought, let's go. And so she did. <laughs> so this is why your mom has a CI, a certificate as well, in Catherine's exhibition, right? Yeah. Because when did she come with your dad to Canada? So they didn't come together. Right. My dad was still waiting to be demobilized after the war. My mom apparently went out the following year. I have some of her travel documents because she had to go through San Francisco and get a visa to come through. And then she landed here at White Rock. My dad's group was basically abandoned in Australia. The war ended. They're secret ops. Uh, we don't know them. And they actually had to make their own way back to Canada. My dad's group actually worked their way back on the tramp steamer coming back. My dad has stories about work coming back. They had to chip paint off the deck. <laughs> and he had this story that in this, I think it was an old troop ship, there was all this rotten cereal because food in the holds and stuff tends to go bad. And him and Eddie were told to clean it out. So they went off to the side of the boat with these bales of rotten cornflakes and they threw them over the side of the boat. However, not realizing that the wind carried the back over top of the boat and rained it over top of the whole bridge and everything. They said the captain was up on the bridge and got rained by all this rotten cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Eddie, is that? That's Eddie Chow. That was his best friend in Operation Oblivion in the group. Those two are really tight. Even afterwards, Eddie became a taxi driver and had a record store in Toronto, but accompanied him on some of the trips up to Vancouver and they would sing army songs and stuff the whole way. Why was it called Operation Oblivion? I think part of the reason was that they weren't expected to come back. If they find you and catch you, we don't know you. They were trained to try to blend in and work with local resistance and give them training. And a lot of them were radio operators. So they would give them logistics and stuff like that and help organize resistance. The reason that I figured that the operation was aborted was at that point, the American Navy was taking over operations in the Pacific and the British was on their way out. These guys were a British crew. They didn't want the British to be getting any major victories or taking over some of their operations. So they were held back from throwing it. So your mom went into Canada first before your dad came back? It's interesting, this is the Yip Sang building. My dad had said that the Yips took care of her when she arrived. Really? And, I, and I'm not sure which Yips it was because my wife's grandfather was a Yip, but I don't think it was that family either. But yeah, some Yips took care of my mother when she first arrived. This building, of course, is the Yip building and Yip Sang was called the unofficial mayor of Chinatown. So it's very possible yeah. that any kind of help needed with new immigrants of Chinese descent, they would go through him. The Chinese associations in general, I think, uh, really formed their own social services within Chinatown. Wherever the government services, official government services can't provide, the, the community steps up and through the associations. And at that time, during the Exclusion Act, the government's certainly not servicing the Chinese community. So I think it's a real point of pride that the Chinese community comes together and actually does things to support itself. That would be an example of that. Because the Chinese Exclusion Act was still in effect, they realized that, hey, what are we going to do about this? So they had to do a special order in council in order to allow her into the country. So they had to specially convene 
in order to allow it was, an, it was an, act of an act of parliament to allow war brides to get in and during that time period only, in 1946 only eight chinese were allowed in and your mother was one of them yeah and if your father was not serving in the war would she have been allowed in no not at all no definitely not but when she took me and my sister back when i was one year old and my sister would have been four years old to australia so that would have been 1957. It would have been hellish going all that way. But they wouldn't let her off the boat in Australia because she was Chinese until she, she said she had a friend. She called a friend and they came and got her out. Racism was really strong at that time. That was part of the white Australian policy. So it would be great if we could hear more about the different skills your dad had to learn or needed during this effort. What became important that he told you about serving in the war? I think there's two kinds of skills that my dad learned. One were the technical skills, but I think from my father's point of view, it was the social skills he learned, his ability to assimilate and to speak with a Southern Ontario accent and to be completely unthreatening to people as a Chinese person. That skill, I think he really honed as part of his spy training in order to be able to be liked in any group and fit in in any group. And I think certainly part of that training came, came from that. Like I said, they didn't infiltrate Japanese lines. They infiltrated all these parties in Melbourne and he came back with my mom. <laughs> and that's something that we forget that happened a lot during the war where most people did not travel, and the people that did travel a lot were people in the army who yeah. had the ability to go to all of these countries that regular citizens of that time would never travel to. Even traveling across Canada, I mean, he was Mr. Canada. When I was a teenager, 10 and 12 years old, he would buy an old Bell Telephone van, convert it, put bunks in, and we'd drive across. We went to Halifax. He showed me where he guarded against submarines. Uh, we went up to northern Quebec, we came out to Vancouver. They were stationed at Tofino, and at Tofino, there used to be a bomber base for operations going across the Pacific. And we went up there, and he was like, where'd the base go? <laughs> and it's like, Dad, it's in your memory, it's not there anymore. But at that time, I remember when we drove up to Tofino, it was all logging roads and logging trucks, and it was terrifying. <laughs> like, it was really rough. But he knew all these places because He'd been stationed in a lot of these places, and so he knew Canada really well. Yeah, he was Mr. Canada. I mean, he was more Canadian than a lot of other people that you meet. <laughs> being Chinese-Canadian and being born here, but then also having this whole side of Australian-Chinese family, do you find that it affects your identity in a different way, as if you were only Canadian? Yeah, hugely. Usually. Well, growing up was really interesting because my mom would always talk about Canadians. <laughs> and it was always with a sense of, they, they were always inferior, like, oh, Canadians would do this. I had this, this kind of strange vision of what Australia was like as well. The first time I went there, it was the vision of Australia from when my mom left, right? And I was like, this place is more modern. So you have different identities within that. I mean, the work that our group has been doing in Chinatown for me, I'm born in London, Ontario. And both my sisters married Jewish guys. I married a girl who's also from basically a neighboring village from our grandparents, right? And I'm doing work on Chinatown. I have studied and taught Kung Fu in Chinatown for 30 years now. 
So reestablishing that connection, my ability to learn Chinese is really bad. I tried really hard, but understanding the culture in different ways has been really important for me. And the same thing with learning Australian culture. I've uh, visited there a few times and an uncle there left me some money, which is sitting in a bank account in Australia. So I can go back there and I can go to a bank machine. <laughs> I got some cash, right? So it's just waiting for me to come back, right? The first time I went there, I was blown away because I would go to a family event here and I have all these distant uncles and aunts and family and all that. And I went to Australia the first time back in the eighties and I had all this kind of a mirror image family on my mother's side. I got the, the sporty uncle and the one that's the nerdy uncle. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. So you, <laughs> so you end up seeing more similarities than differences. Yeah, I see a lot of parallels. I have some super favorite relatives in Australia. I wish I could see more. But, you know, the distance and it's hard and, you know, they sometimes come here and sometimes go there, but it's not a trip you make frequently. <laughs> so today on our Remembrance Day podcast, we're thinking a lot about the legacies of veterans and soldiers like your dad. Your dad, amidst other Chinese Canadians, served in World War II. What was the impact for Chinese Canadians afterwards? How did it change? What happened for the community? I think it was really instrumental that so many Chinese Canadians served in the Second World War that it was impossible to deny their status as Canadian citizens. Up to that time, they were looked at as second-class Canadian citizens, if they were allowed to be Canadian citizens at all. As the paper trail shows, they were obsessively documented and always the first to be suspected of any kind of crime. In the 1885 Royal Report, you know, the questions are all leading. How dirty are they? Uh, what diseases do they bring? Blah, blah, blah. All these kind of things. So there was an assumption that the Chinese were inferior people and not fit to be Canadian citizens. So I think that with their record of service in the Second World War, it was very hard to deny their Canadianness and their willingness to stand up for the country. That, I think, led to eventual changes in Canada to realize both the value of the Chinese Canadian community, but also other immigrant communities to realize that, hey, Canada is not a monocultural white man's paradise. Canada really needs to diversify its outlook and really recognize the contributions of those that are here. And it also led to the repeal of the Exclusion Act in 47. Yeah. Is that right? Well, even having to go to a special order in council to get my mother into the country, I think they kind of realized, hey, well, <laughs> you know, things are changing here. So leading to the repeal of the Exclusion Act, the right to vote, and eventually the points-based immigration system in, I think it was 1967. Uh, I mean, all of those things were chipping away at the damage of the act. And the apology, the Stephen Harper apology, that finally came. In 2009, uh, right? That was 2009, right. yeah. And when you think about the legacy to make an apology, I mean, my wife asked me for apology. I'm not going to wait that many years <laughs> <laughs> on something. You got to do it right away and you got to mean it, right? <laughs> I think their contribution cannot be overlooked because of that. No, it sounds like it was, especially just from the story of your father, it sounds like it was instrumental to so many rights that Chinese Canadians received and were given in the 20th century. So thank you so much, Rick, for spending this time with us here in Vancouver. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 
We invite you all to reflect on the territories that you're on and the host nations. To learn more about the Chinese Canadian Museum and book tickets, visit us at ChineseCanadianMuseum.ca and follow us on Instagram at CCMuseumVC for updates. The Schoolroom is presented by the Chinese Canadian Museum, hosted by Dr. Melissa Carmen Lee and produced by Rosalie Gunawan. The theme music and original audio was created by Joshua Young. Audio engineering and mixing was done by Connor Blakely. Closed captioning is created by Kalani Sapanchi. Post-production is supported by Noah Taylor and the Walrus Lab. Graphic design is by Studio Pian Pian He and Max Harvey. Special thanks to Sarah Ling and Catherine Clement. Stay tuned for next month's episode of The Schoolroom, available wherever you get your podcasts.